Hi, and welcome to the Ready for Polyamory podcast, episode two. As always, my name is Laura Boyle, and I am your host, as well as the author of the Ready for Polyamory blog at readyforpolyamory.com. So you can find the links to the blog, the Patreon, and the Ko-Fi in the show notes. Um, our music, as always, is provided by the lovely and talented Vince Conaway whose site vinceconaway.com you can also find in the notes. Today, we are lucky enough to have as our guest, Dr. Liz Powell, who is a therapist, sex educator, speaker, and popular podcast guest who works with singles, couples, and polycules across the sexual spectra to, to improve their lives, including the sexual portions of their lives. They work with anyone who wants to cultivate healthy, consent-driven, and autonomy-focused relationships. They focus on non-monogamous, non-binary folks, kinksters, and queerdos. You can learn more about their therapy practice and coaching at their site, uh, drlizpowell.com, which is also in the show notes. Uh, They are also the author of Building Open Relationships, Your Hands-On Guide to Swinging Polyamory and Beyond. You can find the link to purchase the book in the show notes as well. I'm really grateful to have them with us today. Uh, Dr. Liz has been quoted in a number of national publications and has been on podcasts much bigger than my dog and pony show here, so I'm very grateful to have them. Today we're going to be talking about hierarchy, prescriptive, descriptive, and for lack of a better word, sneaky. And so it's sort of the good, the bad, and the ugly here. So Dr. Liz, thank you for being here with us. Hierarchies, prescriptive ones, descriptive ones. (laughs) Is that is that upward? I don't know. I mean, a hierarchy does imply directionality, so I guess. I mean, right. Someone is at the top of some of these. So generally, when we're talking about hierarchies, you can have the sort of stereotypical definitional prescriptive hierarchy where one admits that there are primary single or multiple co-primary relationships that are given precedence and stated power imbalance over secondary relationships uh, and perhaps tertiary ones if you are really into doing this system in detail. And then there are some people who try to use these terms descriptively where they're like, oh, well, I don't give a great deal of sort of power to this, but I, due to commitments that I've made with one person or another, they just, by virtue of that, have some degree more power over my life or my schedule than other people do. And so I use these terms descriptively. Uh, and there's also what some people call sneakyarchy, where someone will claim that they have no hierarchy in their lives, but if you date them long enough, you notice that in fact there are one or more partners who are given precedence and more power in 
their life or their relationships than others. So that's kind of the general topic that we're going to talk about today. I generally try not to get into hierarchical relationships myself, but I know that lots of people get into them anyway or enter into polyamory uh, in a relationship that they intend to be primary and later do or don't change their mind about that. So I feel like it's a topic that is worth addressing. Uh, And so I'd like to hear some of your take on this. Uh, I think a lot of people feel drawn towards hierarchy, particularly earlier in their journey in polyamory, because it feels really safe to like have already decided that you're going to be the most important. Uh, I think a lot of us coming from monogamy culture, particularly coming from the very like capitalist, white supremacist, patriarchal culture that we're in, Mm -hmm. believe in love as a scarcity and have this like strong competition for being the best, the specialist in our partner's eyes. Mm -hmm. And so when we come to a place of saying like, my partner is going to have other partners. It can bring up this fear of scarcity of like, well, but if what if I'm not the best partner or the most important partner or the specialist partner? What if they start loving someone else and they want to do things with them that make me feel scared? And so setting up a hierarchy can feel like a protection from these things that we're afraid of happening. But the thing about operating from our fears is that we often end up creating more fears and making those fears worse. Uh, One of the things I work with a lot in my work is trauma. Mm -hmm. And when we're treating trauma, a lot of what we talk to people about is how after trauma, our brain starts having trouble determining when we're in a threat and when we're not. Mm -hmm. And because we had something bad happen to us, it's much safer for our brain to over-perceive threats, to think Mm -hmm. that there are threats when there aren't, than to like miss a threat. So it's going to be like hyper attuned to any potential threat in our environment. And one of the only ways to address that and help our brain come back to a more balanced threat assessment is to start going into things that our brain is saying might be a threat, kind of being around it and letting our brain see that like actually no threat happened. Maybe this isn't as threaty as we thought it was. Yep. Hierarchy, I think, is like, that kind of hypervigilance mechanism for love and sex. Mm-hmm. It is a way that we say, ooh, I'm scared this might happen. Let's make sure it never happens. I'm just never going to do that thing, right? Yeah. So instead of like never going to the mall, we never let our partner sleep over with someone else or mm-hmm. we ask our partner to guarantee that we can force them to break up with whoever we don't like. Mm-hmm. But as with trauma, when we avoid the things that are false alarms it actually tells our brain that it was a real alarm. Mm -hmm. And with hierarchy, when we try to like legislate away our fears, we end up reinforcing that the fears were based in reality. And we can start believing that the only reason our partner hasn't broken up with us for someone younger, thinner, hotter, smarter, cooler, less needy, whatever it is, Mm -hmm. is because we have the rules. It's not healthy. It doesn't help us. So basically, it's that 
in creating this security blanket of rules for ourselves, we convince ourselves that the only reason that we're warm is that we have the security blanket of rules and it's not that actually it's 65 degrees out and so it would be okay to be without it. Yeah. I mean, the only way to learn trust is to give people an opportunity to hurt us. Right. So instead of trusting our partners and operating from a place of trust, we end up operating from a place of fear and mistrust and sort of being on edge the whole time anyway, because we've created rules that our partners sort of hesitantly agreed to, as opposed to coming to Mm, full-throated agreement with. I'm trying to come up with a good adjective for it, but do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I think even if it's part of what I see with a lot of hierarchy is that when folks initially negotiate them, Mm -hmm. it's very easy for both people to be on the same page because it's all about hypotheticals. Mm -hmm. You don't have a strong attachment to the hypothetical partner who will want to sleep over at some point. Mm -hmm. You aren't very deeply in love with the hypothetical person that your partner might ask you to break up with. Mm -hmm. When we negotiate a hierarchy, a lot of times we're agreeing to things on the premise that in our current state, it would be totally fine. But humans are very, very bad at predicting how we will feel in situations once we're there. And so I think a lot of people agree to hierarchies, even with like fully feeling like they're on board, but thinking that they are going to be more able to predict how it will be for them than once they are there. I also think that it is tough for most of us to sit down with our partner who's saying like, I really want you to not do those things and to sit with them and say like, I see that you have a lot of stuff going on for you around this. I care really deeply about you. I love you. I want to be able to support you and help you feel as safe as I can. And I'm not willing to agree to these things. Right. It's hard to say, I see that you have a lot of concerns about this, but I know that in the future it's possible that I will have strong enough feelings about this that I shouldn't make this agreement. Yeah. I think it's hard for us to say no when our partner is in distress. Uh, You know, I was in a situation... Uh, earlier on in my more recent polyamory, uh, where I was dating someone and we had agreed to be non-monogamous. I had told him when we started dating that I was going to be non-monogamous. I was going to date other people. And then as soon as I had a date scheduled with someone else, he was like, okay, I think I'm going to be okay with this. Morning of the date comes and he's a mess. He is crying. He's upset. He's asking me not to go. And I had to sit down with him and say like, I love you a lot. I am happy to talk with you about ways that I can support you in these feelings. I am unwilling to cancel the date. Yeah. So other than canceling this date, how can we help support these feelings? And it was hard to see this person who I cared about crying and like asking me to please not go and to stick with what I knew what was right for me and on the whole for our relationship, which was going on the date Because if I decided to cancel from the perspective of like how our brains operate, how our feelings operate, 
it's not going to make it easier the next time I have a date. It's just going to put off this same conflict until I decide to sit down and say, I'm still going. Right. How can I help you get accustomed to this and discover that it's not a threat that I'm going to do this thing that I'm going to keep doing so that we can keep having this relationship that we mutually enjoy is a hard point to get to when the other person is at, I am a sobbing wreck right now. And I think so much of this is because the script or the, the understanding most of us learn about relationships from our culture is one of coercion and control and lack of boundaries. You know, monogamy culture is all about subsuming our identities into our couplehood. It is about not having friends of the same gender as your partner if it makes them uncomfortable. It's about you know, not talking to people you've known for a while, not hugging, like whatever it is. Codependence and ownership. Yeah. And I think when we work at coming into places of autonomy in our relationships, it can feel very uncomfortable Mm -hmm. because it's not even just that we are challenging ourselves to stand with what is right for us in the face of our partner's emotional Uh, struggle. It is also that we are fighting an entire culture that tells us that it is a terrible person who can watch their partner cry and still do the thing that is making their partner cry. Right. And so with the issue of hierarchy, this sort of setup of not letting someone take the role of the primary partner who can control the rest of the situation then makes a lot of people feel like the bad guy in scare quotes here and so as people people take longer to get there in their polyamorous journey a lot of the time unless they're the sort of people who do a ton of research before they come to it or who for I don't know exactly what phrase I want here but who already uh, know that they don't want the kind of relationship where they can't keep hugging their friends who are of the opposite gender or of the gender that they're attracted to yeah you know it's a lot of my bi friends who are like, there are no friends, only pray, who oh, yeah. end up uh, getting into relationships where they early on aren't in hierarchies because they're like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, yeah, that I mean, I think there's a strong overlap with like queerness as distinguished from homosexuality, right? Because right. queerness is about deconstructing the norms of what it is to be in relationship. Uh, people can be gay or lesbian and still be very heteronormative in their relating, whereas people who are queer, which is often a lot of folks who are polysexual, often a lot of folks who are non binary or challenging gender norms 
once you've started unpacking those cultural scripts in one way, it's often a lot easier to unpack them in others. Um, and particularly for those of us who are bi, like me, or pan, or poly, or omnisexual, if someone is going to try to set up a thing of like, you can't be friends with someone who's of a gender you're sexually attracted to, I can't have friends. So that's just never going to work for me. <laughs> right. And so when you take a lot of the rules that make prescriptive primacy sort of important away, you take prescriptive primacy off the table. Yeah. And then when you get to the descriptive uses of hierarchy, you end up hitting the, oh, I use these words as shorthand. And in recent years, because I've been some form of uh, ethical, non ethically non-monogamous, for uh, 13 years now and identifying as polyamorous for eight, I've seen a lot of people sort of throwing out using primary, secondary sort of terminology and moving over to using terms like nesting partner or anchor partner for people who they have a high degree of entanglement with. Uh, but there are still a fair number of people who will use the sort of primary secondary terminology for people who they have a higher or lower amount of entanglement with, but they don't mean it as, well, one of these people has a rulemaking power over the other. They just use it as shorthand for this is the one that I live with and this is the one that I don't. Uh, and when they're using the language that way, I, th I think a lot of people find that slightly less problematic or do it later in their journey. Yeah. I mean, I think... I understand why some people would use hierarchical terms, even if they do not believe that they are creating hierarchical structures. However, actual prescriptive hierarchies, in my opinion, are almost never ethical structures because someone outside of a relationship has more power over that relationship than at least one of the people in that relationship. When we use those terms to describe our relationships, it is really easy for us to start creating expectation sets that go along with that terminology that end up either like building those sneaky archies or like making it harder to maintain that non-hierarchical approach. Mm -hmm. I think that one of the biggest things I see, particularly folks newer to polyamory misunderstand is that I think a lot of folks have this, kind of all or nothing thing with hierarchy of like, well, if you don't have hierarchy, then you have to treat everyone exactly the same and see them the exact same amount and everybody's exactly equal. And that's not actually what anybody is saying ever. Uh, it's more about equal empowerment. Everybody has the same amount of autonomy and empowerment in their relationships. 
the thing about hierarchical terms is that we live in a hierarchy reinforcing culture, both in mm -hmm. terms of like racial supremacy, ableism, sexism, uh, the financial status, like all of those things. Right, for sure. And when we reinforce those within our languaging, within our relationships, it's really easy for that to then reinforce hierarchical behaviors, even if we don't intend them. Yeah. We do not live in a culture that encourages us to treat everyone with equal empowerment and autonomy. We live in a culture of coercion and control. We live in a culture of exploitation. We live in a culture of manipulation. When we are not very particular about how we use our language, it is much easier for us to become less particular about how we are relating. And so like, yeah, it's easy to have shorthand, but for me, I actually kind of prefer having to have longer conversations about things. For instance, the label queer. If someone tells you they are queer, it doesn't necessarily tell you anything specifically about who they date or how they date. Right. It requires a conversation. Yes. Similarly, when we have labels for our relationships, the way that we use those labels may not coincide to what somebody else thinks about those labels. So for instance, uh, when people who I'm seeing ask me if I want to be their partner or if I ask them if they want to be my partner, that conversation always includes a conversation about what partner means to us, what expectations it has with us, like why we want it, because I want to be sure that we're using that terminology in the same way. I don't want to use terminology that for me means one thing, it means something else for somebody else. When we try to find our shorthands, it can make communication more parsimonious, it can make it quicker, but often we end up with like misagreements and miscommunications because we have different understandings of the terms. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like my partner uses... my partner uses partner the way I use boyfriend and uses boyfriend the way I use partner. So we had like a four month long disagreement over whether or not we could use the word boyfriend or the word partner and what each of them meant. Because to me, a partner is like somebody you could put as your emergency contact if you ended up in the hospital. Mm -hmm. And like deep importance is going to stay in your life quite a while. You'd talk it out with them before you moved kind of thing. And boyfriend is like somebody you've dated for a few months and to him, it's kind of the other way around. Like, your partner is somebody you've dated a bit. And you're, you know, who you would let know about STI status maybe, but that's about it. And your boyfriend is your emergency contact. And I'm like, what? That makes no sense to me. What are you <laughs> right. saying? So from like month 10 of our relationship to month like 14 of our relationship, we had like an ongoing fight over why he was upset that I wanted to use the word boyfriend so soon. <laughs> yeah. And I think this happens a lot about terminology. If someone tells me they have a primary partner, I'm not going to date them because... Mm -hmm. 
I'm going to assume it is a prescriptive hierarchy or a sneakyarchy, or at the very least, someone that is just not going to be on the right, the same page that I'm at mm-hmm. for how we handle our relationships. Yeah. Whereas if someone tells me they have a nesting partner or an anchor partner or a foundational partner, then I can ask them questions about what that means for them. Right. And then you can come to an understanding about whether or not it's someone you can see. Yeah. But for me, I don't date hierarchy. I don't. I've had too many negative experiences. I don't enjoy a relationship where there is a sort of Damocles at all times. I don't want that. That's not a thing that I enjoy. So like I had a relationship. I was with this person for a year. We loved each other really deeply. From early on, there was a lot of talk about becoming partners at some point and that in order for us to progress from where we were, which was definitely more than sweeties or lovers, but couldn't quite be partners yet, I would have to meet their wife. Their wife would not agree to meet me the entire year we were together. Not even on video chat. Hmm. So I broke up with this person because this is a trap. (laughs) Uh, We're still very close. We still care about each other a lot. Their wife still has not met me. Uh, We're talking about maybe being lovers again and they would need to get permission from their wife And that alone almost makes me not want to be their lover because do you need a permission slip to go to the hall? Like, what the fuck? Um, Are you a grown up or are you not? A little bit like I would maybe be on the same page. Like, right. And I want to put in the like, it's a trap gif right here. Right. And like, when we started dating, I asked this person about like, is this like a hierarchy hierarchy? Like, do you have veto power and stuff? Or is this more like you just describe it like this because you because it's descriptive? And they were like, oh, no, no, we don't veto. That is definitely not a thing we do. But kind of they do because right. there's, it, they it's contr- just... <laughs> they control escalation past a certain point. Yeah. And the, like, justification for this was that, oh, well, you know, sometimes I have really bad judgment in my partners, and so I just want to make sure that someone else checks it out to make sure that I, right? So, like, so much there. Listeners, I just sight gagged by leaning back and making my eyes really big. I understand that sight gags are lost on a podcast, but it's important to note. Right. And here's the thing. If you cannot trust your own partner selection, what you need is a therapist, not a primary partner who chooses who you get to date. Right. This is self-work one needs to do, not not something to offload. Right. And I think, you know, sneakyarchies, There are a lot of people who say, like, we are absolutely not hierarchical. But then the more that you're involved with them, the more that there are these weird stumbling blocks that you keep hitting. (laughs) Um, And I think that that shows up a lot. And I think that a lot of descriptive hierarchies are actually sneakyarchies a lot of the time. Right. So I... I have a post about this where, like, basically... Sneakyarchies are most often things where it's just something where they don't think they're a hierarchy because they don't have veto power or because they think their rule is not that bad and therefore it's not a hierarchy. Like, 
oh, just because it's about me not sleeping outside the house, it's not a hierarchy or something like this. But when it's something that gets sprung on you a year in after you're emotionally invested, that's sneaking it up on you. (laughs) Yeah, and I think a lot of sneakyarchy stuff that shows up is often framed in terms of safety or trauma, right? So, of course, I can't have unbarriered sex with anyone but this partner because safety. Or I can't sleep outside the house because trauma. Uh, And the thing is, like, safety concerns and trauma stuff is super real. It is super mm-hmm. valid for us to have a lot of fears that come up. It is super valid for us to want to be able to like set boundaries around how people interact with our bodies. Mm-hmm. However, I think that there are a lot of times in which people use safety concerns or trauma as a way to avoid having to have a conversation about their own responsibility in that situation. So to take an example outside of non-monogamy, let's talk about TERFs trans-exclusionary radical feminists, right? A lot of them these days, their favorite argument to make about why trans women can't be in women's spaces, particularly Mm -hmm. bathrooms or changing rooms, is what if someone has trauma, you don't want to force a girl to see a penis if she's been raped. That would be terrible. And like, here's the thing. Yes, it might be true that someone's trauma trigger is a penis. However, that does not mean that we never have to explore that any deeper or deal with that any deeper. If someone's trauma trigger was a person of a certain race, we would not say that it's okay for them to demand a space free of that race in order for them to not have to feel that trauma. Yep. With these relational issues, if you have a fear that is related to abandonment or that is related to uh, your partner not being there every night or your partner not coming back. That does not mean that the answer is for your partner to never sleep away. If you have a fear about STIs, the answer is not that your partner never gets to have unbarried sex with someone else. This is more of that same, like avoid the problem reinforces it is a problem. If your issue is around these things, it is perfectly valid for that to feel really hard. It is perfectly valid for that to be very challenging for you. It is not valid to control someone else's behavior as a result of it. Right. And if it's a safety issue with, like, STIs, most of the time testing and your own boundaries around your own behavior are perfectly sufficient to address the actual safety concerns. Yeah. I mean, let's talk about what STIs we're actually controlling for with barrier use, right? So even if we use barriers, we can Mm -hmm. still pass HSV and HPV. Yep. Uh, Almost two thirds of the population has HSV, herpes simplex, simplex virus, either orally or genitally. Uh, Some of us have never had an outbreak. We just have it in our systems. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's everywhere, you know? 
Uh, HPV, you can get Gardasil, which protects, I think, now against 12 different versions of the human papillomavirus, which are the Depends most common cancer causes. what country you're in. There's a 16-strain yes. version that's approved in some countries and a 12-strain in some countries. Yeah. So those can be passed whether you use barriers or not. Then if we're talking about ones that can be passed without barrier use, a lot of people who are very insistent about their partners, particularly in like penis-vagina pairings, mm -hmm. always using condoms for vaginal or anal sex, don't require condoms for oral sex or dental dams for oral sex. Mm -hmm. And did you know all the same STIs you can transmit through PIV or PIA, you can also transmit orally. Mm -hmm. So if you're giving a bareback blowjob, there's not that much STI transmission difference risk in terms of that versus PIV. Uh, the ones we can transmit. HIV, obviously the big baddie of these. If you're super concerned about HIV, you can get on PrEP. I'm on Truvada. Every day I take a little blue pill and it makes it so that I am highly unlikely to ever get HIV. I went to my doctor. I said, look, I have sex with men who have sex with men. I have sex with sex workers. I have a lot of sex. I think you should put me on Truvada. And they said, yes, you are absolutely correct. We will put you on Truvada. And because they now know that I am a slutty, slutty, slut, 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 I get fantastic STI testing every quarter. I get blood, urine, and swabs, oral, anal, and vaginal. So all this stuff is tested all the time. Because this is another thing. There can be site-specific infections. You can have gonorrhea or chlamydia in your throat. You can have it in your vagina or in your anus. And it may not show up on blood work. So depending on what kind of testing you're getting, you may not know that there's something there that's being transmitted. Uh, I had an STI uh, scare two years ago. I had hooked up with this guy. We had both been tested before. Uh, I had gotten my full like swab Cadillac uh, experience. Uh, and shortly after we hooked up, we decided not to use barriers because for me, I make this as a, like a risk assessment decision more so than like an emotional decision sometimes he started having some symptoms of what seemed like gonorrhea. And I was like, it would be highly unlikely that you got this from me, but I will go get tested. And so I asked him some other questions about other risks that could have happened. And he had gotten a barrier-free blowjob from another person. And I asked him like, have they gotten a throat swab to test for gonorrhea? And he said, oh no. I was like, well, you can have a site-specific infection. So that might be where this came from. Mm -hmm. Gonorrhea chlamydia, fairly easily treatable with antibiotics. Yep. Uh, syphilis, pretty damn easily treatable with antibiotics. Uh, only really becomes a serious problem if you do not treat it for years and years. Mm -hmm. So most of this stuff is not actually a huge deal. These days in particular, when we're recording this at the end of 2020, mm -hmm. you are at much more risk from getting COVID from hooking up with somebody than any of the STIs that are out there. And I will post the link to the blog's post, just the STI facts, ma'am, uh, as well, just so that everybody can get the roundup on all of the stats as of early 2019, if anyone's interested, as well as different types of tests you can get for all of these. And you can do home testing. There are a lot of companies these days that will mail you a kit to do your own swabs at home and do your own blood and urine at home so that you don't even have to go to a doctor and tell them how slutty you are in order to get your tests. 
It costs more money. Your insurance probably won't cover it, but you can do it in the comfort of your home and slut your heart away. Uh, I am leaning away from the mic to giggle just because the number of times she has said slutty slut is (laughs) getting to me. It's great. Yeah. And like one other thing about STIs is I think that for a lot of us, we have a ton of fear about it that is out of proportion to the reality. Particularly if you are in a non-monogamous community, the research that we have is that there is less STI transmission within non-monogamous communities than monogamous ones. Because most of us get tested more and most of us care more and most of us actually have conversations (laughs) about it. We do real risk assessment. Yes. Um, So while many non-monogamous have had more partners than monogamous, although not all, the numbers are rising among serial monogamous, uh, and they also lie on the forms more. They lie Uh, so much more. (laughs) And that's been proven. Because they don't lie on the anonymous surveys where they talk about cheating more. Uh, We generally talk more with more of our partners about our actual risk assessment. So that to the side, the point that we were starting to make before we took our little detour into STI Risk Town was that... The actual STI risk, because of all of this talking and actual risk assessment that we do, isn't really that substantially high. So most of the time, the control that people are trying to exert over their partners isn't actually going to protect as much as they think it is. Well, and I think it's not actually about the safety concern. I think that the safety concern is the easy veneer to put on top of our emotional concern. Mm -hmm. That for a lot of us, particularly in ongoing interactions with folks, the people with whom we choose to not use barriers tend to often be the ones with whom we feel the closest emotional entanglement. Mm -hmm. That is not always the case. Some of us do not operate that way all the time. But usually when we are deciding to not use barriers with someone, it is because we feel emotionally close to them. Mm -hmm. And so if we feel a discomfort with our partner getting emotionally close with others, it is much harder to say, don't love that person and much easier to say, keep using condoms. That certainly makes a lot of sense. And from a hierarchical perspective, makes a lot of sense about trying to enforce power over other relationships at that point. Um, And it makes sense for that to be a point where sneakyarchy tries to rear its head because that's a sort of pain point in relationships because it appears later on in a relationship generally for most people. Yeah. Um, And I think it's also, for most of us, can feel very emotionally loaded. Because again, I think a lot of this comes to specialness, that we're trying to figure out like how we're special. What is it that is just ours with this person? 
And I think for a lot of us, the easiest thing to point to is like the activity that we do or like the name that we get or whatever it is. But those are signifiers of our specialness. Those are not what is actually our specialness. I think that when we try to preserve our specialness through these more surface signifiers, it prevents us from trying to figure out like what is our specialness to this person? Like my partner is not with me and viewing me as special because we're the only people that we have unburied sex with. Why am I special to this person? What is it that they appreciate about me? And how can I hang on to that rather than the restaurant that we only go to together or that I'm their only girlfriend or boyfriend or joyfriend? We can agree that not only is prescriptive hierarchy potentially damaging and unethical, but that using descriptive hierarchy can be the same because it gives people both a feeling of entitlement to exert the same kind of power uh, within their relationships and it paves the way for kind of sneaky use of the same for people who are in kind of delicate or rough emotional moments in relationships. Uh, Those sort of moments where they're trying to figure out what their specialness in a particular relationship is or where they're dealing with fear or trauma or just kind of difficult times and their reaction is to lash out at a partner's other relationships by exerting power. Yeah. I mean, I think the thing here is that a lot of times we want these structures, we want these rules, we want these labels to make us feel safe. Mm -hmm. But the safety we're getting from them isn't real. The safety that we're getting from them is an illusion. And when we're holding on to them to try to keep that feeling of safety, we're preventing ourselves from being able to find real safety or real comfort or real certainty. Relationships are never safe. The more we care about someone, the more dangerous it is because they can hurt us deeper. Mm -hmm. And so if we're trying to feel safe, we're creating traps for everybody. What we need to find instead is a way to trust and have faith and be able to roll with what happens without needing to feel that kind of rigid safety. Uh, You know, I'm reminded of, I I used to be a skydiver. And what we would always say is you pay for the ride up, not the ride down. (laughs) At some point, you have to get out of the damn plane. And if you want to keep holding on to the door because you're worried about what's going to happen when you let go, you're going to have a much rougher time of things than if you just jump your ass out the door and deal with it once you're out. Right. Love is vulnerable. And so not giving in to that vulnerability and insisting on the rigid rule structure keeps people from experiencing that full vulnerability within their non-monogamous relationship structures. Yeah. And I think that this also relates to a way that within our cultures, most of us don't learn how to 
recognize and honor our own boundaries, recognize and honor our own wants and needs, and to like start asking for them early and often. A lot of us, when we start relationships, we try to be like the best partner possible. For me, that looks like I have no needs. I am like the easiest partner ever. I'm like, do you want me to cook you dinner? I can also do this for you. Like, how about I do these things? You don't need to do anything. It's fine. I'm great. Everything's fine. Which is really unhealthy mm -hmm. in the long term because it sets me up in a relationship where the only person with wants and needs is my partner and the person serving the other person's wants and needs is me. And that is hugely imbalanced. Mm-hmm. It is more important for me at the start of a relationship to make a bunch of asks and give my partner opportunities to step up and show what they can do than for me to try to be this like perfect partner and earn their love. It is better for me at the start of a relationship to set a bunch of boundaries around like, hey, I, it actually wasn't cool for you to like not text me back for a week and a half. That was, that was not great. I'm not cool with that. That's not how I operate. <laughs> Right. I have to set up awkward conversations that I don't want to be having that early, early in a relationship so that I can talk about what my boundaries sort of generally are and feel really awkward doing it or else I let the early part of relationships just eat me a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, so I get that. Because uh, if I don't, it's a mess later when I'm like, oh, by the way, I'm a person. <laughs> Here you go. And I think that it's easy to try to find rules that get your partner to give you what you want without you having to come to them with the vulnerability of like, hey, I'm feeling this way. I really want this thing. Or you've been spending a lot of time with this person and I can see you're really excited about them. And like, I want to feel a ton of compersion about that. I just am noticing that I'm feeling like I'm not as interesting to you anymore and I'm not getting as much attention and love. So I would really appreciate if I could get some of that. If you could show me that you love me too. I'm feeling a whole kind of way. So mm -hmm. could you maybe spread some of that around? <laughs> Right. It's much more vulnerable to have to have that conversation about what our feeling is and what we want than to say, you're not allowed to love anybody else. I don't like how you're acting with this new person. You need to change this thing. Right? That is about keeping your skin out of the game, keeping your vulnerability away and safe. And I think I get why we do that, right? Most of us have had our hearts battered and bruised by people who treated us like shit. But I would rather start taking those chances early and give people chances to fuck up early so that I can get the fuck away from them than get deep into a relationship with someone that only works so long as neither of us are being real about what's going on for us. Yeah, that all makes a lot of sense. And the general concept of watching out for hierarchy where it's trying to sneak in around corners uh, has been a really interesting idea to think about because I think uh, your perspective of the ways that using it descriptively as a or as shorthand as opposed to finding and using different terms 
reinforcing for people that they have the right to use that power later uh, was a really interesting one that I certainly hadn't thought of. So I really appreciate you talking to me about this yeah. and taking the time. So thanks for being on. And, Thank you for having me. Uh, I'm going to throw links in the show notes to your site, my site, both our Patreons, uh, the project that you're running for the new year, which if you'd like yes. to take a minute to talk about, uh, sure, certainly got a minute. Yeah. So uh, starting January 30th, I am doing, or December 30th, January 30th, God, December 30th, uh, <laughs> I am doing a six-week email course for the new year. It's called New Year's Explorations. Uh, it is all about starting this year with a bunch of love for yourself, a bunch of self-understanding and acceptance and forgiveness. It's about joy and play and pleasure and you know, being uncool, just earnestly liking things. And I created this course because, I mean, 2020 has been a shit kicker of a year and haven't we all suffered enough? And I was thinking of the new year and hearing people already talking about their like diet and exercise resolutions for 2021. And I, I was talking with a friend and I was like, wouldn't it be great if instead of starting each year punishing ourselves for how wrong our bodies were, we took some time to tune back into ourselves, to rediscover who we are and how we are and feel ourselves all the way through and begin the year with that kind of love and attunement rather than discipline and punishment. The, the not fun discipline and punishment. There can be fun discipline and punishment for most of us. <laughs> the kind of like start of the new year crash diet and exercise is not particularly fun. So I'm starting that on December 30th. There's going to be a kickoff call that night. Uh, there'll be emails for the following six weeks. Uh, and then there'll be a wrap up call at the end of it where we talk about what we learned each week. We'll have a theme that we're covering, including uh, a, a message from me with some thoughts about that theme and then a whole group of different explorations you can choose from to see how you want to explore that theme. It'll have stuff that's reading and writing, art, movement, discussions, touch, trying to get as many different ways of exploring stuff as possible. Well, that sounds really cool. And so all that and links to all of your social media are going to be both in the show notes. And if you're listening to this, through the podcast's actual site as opposed to through your favorite podcast reader, there will also be a guest bio that you can click into that will repeat the information in the show notes as well as having links to all of Dr. Liz's uh, social media if anyone would like to follow them all of the places. Um, so thank you for being with me. Yes. And... Now, as usual, we're going to cut to the wonderful outro music provided by my good friend Vince Conaway, who you can find at vinceconaway.com. So it's been a great week, and I will speak to you all next week. Bye, everybody.
Good. It's still going to say recording because I'm going to stop recording when we're actually out of this and then I will cut this. But uh, yes, my dog and pony show is not uh, particularly fancy, but it is remarkably actually listened to. So (laughs) yeah, that's fine. I... When it's up, let me know. I'll post links everywhere. I'll put it up on my social media. I will let you know. I will tag you on Twitter when I share it there. Um, Do you have a Facebook, like, page? No, I deleted it. Okay, cool. If you did have a page or group that you maintained, I would add it too, but I don't. I don't don't Facebook anymore. I Instagram and Twitter. That's fine. I included Instagram and Twitter in the thing that I sent you as the things that I would link to. Um, I'm going to include all of that information in the like show notes that pop up on all of the places that it shares out to because my podcast reader like or host rather shares out to apple google stitcher and one more place that i can't remember the name of but then the apple and google mirror out to like 13 more places oh your puppers right. so cute yeah my this is, JoJo. is gigantic and would JoJo. not have tolerated uh me being in here with the shades closed uh, so since I closed the curtains so that the sound doesn't entirely bounce off of the windows, right? Uh, she would not have liked it because she tries to go out those doors into the backyard all the time. Uh, but she wanders the house. Her name is Pumpkin. She is half beagle. This is Jojo. Hi, Jojo, Jojo just sleeps in my lap most of the day. That's that's, that's what she does. She's my little cuddle buddy. She is the cutest. She's very cute. But yes, I uh, I really appreciate it. And thank you for being understanding about yesterday's not totally. recording snafu. Yeah. And it looks like I got both copies. So Perfect. I will hopefully have the better quality sound than just the Zoom copy. And I will cut that down to length. And I will let you know when it's up. And we can share it all the places. And uh, if you email me the links, that's the easiest way for me to get it up everywhere, because then I can just shoot the email to my assistant. I will. And it'll be good. Um, boo, boo, boo. And yay. Thank you. Awesome. You're welcome. Thank you for having me on. Cool. Oh, uh, I'll also, I can get it online, but there's a, a link to like the folder of all the worksheets from my book. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you linked to the book, it's on that page, so it's fine. Yeah, yeah I, it's fine. I linked to the book, and I think it'll be January 2nd, but okay. I am not 100% sure, but I'm fairly certain it'll be January 2nd, unless I really get my crap together and start before the day after Christmas, but we will, we will see. It is okay. highly dependent on how well-behaved children are. Um, yeah. Totally get it. <laughs> so I actually have to get my stuff together because I have to go pick them up in half an hour. All right. Cool. Bye. Bye. Bye.